Yes. Hey, everybody. It's your host, Nikki Lynette. Thank you so much for listening to About a Girl. In the coming weeks, we're delivering some of your favorite past episodes, paired with another great show from Double Elvis called Disgraceland. If you're not a listener yet, Disgraceland tells the insane stories of musicians through the lens of true crimes they've committed or have been carried out against them. In addition to stories about other cultural icons, whether they are actors, athletes, authors, or artists. Get ready for some About a Girl and Disgraceland episode pairings featuring Beyonce and Jay-Z, Sharon and Ozzy Osbourne, Carolyn Dennis and Bob Dylan, Valerie Bertinelli and Eddie Van Halen, Betty and Miles Davis, and more. All coming to you right here in the About a Girl feed. And if you want to chat about the show, hit me up on Instagram at Nikki Lynette. That's N-I-K-K-I-L-Y-N-E-T-T-E. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. rock roll About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. You know about Jim Morrison, the Lizard King, poet first, rock and roll frontman second, the son of a naval admiral whose band The Doors embodied the dark side of 1960s counterculture. But this is not about Jim Morrison. This is about his long-term girlfriend, his cosmic mate, the woman who maybe knew him better than anyone, an enigma even today. Pamela Carson. This story is about a girl. Later, she wouldn't remember exactly how they met. It had seemed inevitable that they'd find each other in 1966 in L.A., drifting through the in-between spaces of the city. She was aware of him before they got together. First, from when she'd seen his band The Doors at the London Fog in West Hollywood. A second time at a house party near UCLA, when they'd talked for a while but they'd gotten distracted before he had the chance to get her number and then again another night when she'd come back to the London Fog. Pam had run away from her button-up hometown in Orange County, 
from the parents who couldn't begin to understand her, though they were still sending her money. She was making a new life, a new identity, collecting Luger pistols and going to concerts with the friends she was making along the way. Jim was living on a friend's roof in Venice Beach, writing down the lyrics to songs he could hear as a full rock concert in his head. They seemed to match, two people trying hard to see through the veil of the world into something more vast. Pam hadn't really felt like she belonged in Orange County, and she felt like no matter what she did, it was never good enough. Jim seemed to understand what that felt like. They ate tacos at a Mexican restaurant, and Jim drank beer, and they talked about their lives. He told her about how his father had been a naval officer, just like hers, and how he'd never felt any love from either of his parents. They treated him as a nuisance, if they paid attention at all. I haven't told anyone what I'm telling you, he said. I tell everyone else they're dead. Well, except Ray. Ray knows. He knew Ray Manzarek from UCLA's film school, where they'd been students together. Then they'd run into each other one day on the beach and started talking about music. Jim thought that with his writing and Ray's musical talent, they could really be successful, meaning more people would hear his words and ideas. They'd brought in Robbie Krieger on guitar and John Densmore on drums, and they'd been gigging as much as they could ever since. He didn't want to sing in a band forever, he told her. Eventually, he'd like to write and publish books of poetry, like Dylan Thomas or Walt Whitman. One day, though, he'd like to live somewhere remote, away from everyone and everything, and just write. She knew what he meant. Looking into his eyes, she thought she could see herself. More than a reflection, it was a vision of herself as she wanted to be seen. Jim Morrison was the kind of person you met once in a lifetime. The kind of person who came around once in a generation. If that. And he wanted her. And she wasn't about to let that go. In spite of what Jim had said about not wanting to sing in a band forever, the doors seemed destined for worldwide fame and fortune. They gave up their regular gig at the London Fog to become the Whiskey A Go-Go's house band. Being on the Sunset Strip, in the heart of LA nightlife, meant more exposure. It was cool for a few months until it went stale, but it paid off. One night, the head of Electra Records came in and was so impressed he offered them a three-album deal. LA's hottest band, now with a major record deal. They were on the edge of breaking out. Meanwhile, Jim and Pam had become a cult of two. The other band members thought she was sweet. And she was. She was barely 20. 98 pounds, her hair a red banner down her skinny back. Jim loved that she was so small he could practically pick her up with one hand. But she could be fierce when she needed to be. And she often needed to be. Because Jim had a temper when he was drinking. Jim, her poet, was always so gentle, so charming. Until the booze reached a critical mass in his bloodstream. And then he was a monster. One night, they'd be connected on a near-mystical level. The next, Jim would stumble home late in a stupor. Pam would confront him and he'd rage at her and she'd rage back. One night, she found herself crouching in a closet, her fist still stinging from hitting Jim's face, screaming at him through the locked door as he tried to set it on fire. 
this wasn't the worst of their fights. In a way, each shouting match, each plate-throwing brawl brought them closer together when the shards settled. The more violence they survived from each other, the more important it seemed to stay together. Sometimes, in the middle of a fight, they'd find themselves laughing. They both loved the rush of adrenaline that came with destroying things. The violence. They had a game where they tried to scare each other. They'd jump out of darkened corners, sneak up on each other. They'd point knives at each other or Pam's collection of pistols. They'd drive their car up to Mulholland and point it toward the cliff. See how close they could go before they swerved, breathless, away from the edge. The other members of the band tried to work around Jim's volatility. When Jim got the band thrown out of the whiskey after an explicit stream of consciousness Oedipal rant, they found another gig at a club down the street. When they were recording their first album and he dropped acid and broke into the recording studio and trashed it, they cleaned up the place after him. As they finished the album, their producer, Paul Rothschild, leaned over to Robbie, the guitarist. We'd better get as much of the stuff from Jim as fast as possible, he muttered, because he's not going to make it. Pam knew that they saw him as a time bomb. That was okay. She knew that she and Jim were going places the band wouldn't be able to follow. But for now, they were making it. The Doors' first single, Light My Fire, was a number one hit. And amidst the explosion of fame, they quickly got to work on their second album, Strange Days. Jim and Pam had just gotten a house in Laurel Canyon, the new hippie capital of the California music scene. Members of The Birds, Three Dog Night, Buffalo Springfield, and The Mamas and the Papas were their neighbors. David Crosby lived across the street, and Frank Zappa was around the corner. The whole neighborhood was so full of rock musicians that there was a constant stream of music in the air and a constant stream of drug dealers going door to door. Jim liked alcohol and acid. Pam liked pot and soon heroin. In December, Ray married his girlfriend, Dorothy, and Jim and Pam started talking about getting married too. They kept taking out marriage licenses They'd go down to City Hall and get the license, pick a date, get into a fight, and then let the license lapse. Maybe they just weren't the marrying kind. Besides, Jim Morrison was a sex symbol, and the Doors management felt a marriage wouldn't be right for his image as the Lothario Lizard King. Pam supposed she understood that he wanted to maintain an image, but that didn't mean she had to like it. She knew that it was more than just an image, though. He didn't want to just appear available. He wanted to be available. There was a string of girlfriends he had on the side, and Pam sometimes flew into jealous rages. And other times, just couldn't seem to get worked up about it. Part of that was the heroine. But she always knew none of them ever supplanted her. That was the important thing. Pam began acting out in kind. Instead of marrying Pam, Jim bought her a clothing shop. They named it Themis, after the Greek goddess of law. Ironically, an area where Jim was finding more and more trouble. By now, Pam was openly telling him to leave the doors. The money was good, but she felt rock music was beneath what Jim was capable of achieving artistically. He could be a great poet or a great film director, and Pam was concerned he was becoming cornered by the band's success. After all, she thought, he never wanted to become a rock star.
The worst fight was on the first day of March in 1969. What was it about? Did it even matter? The Doors had a gig in Miami, and Pam was meant to come with them and spend a week in Jamaica with Jim. Instead, Jim flew to Miami without her. She was miles away from him when he took the stage, drunk. When he launched into a nonsensical rant, when he stripped off his clothing, when he trashed the light board. The other band members dealt with the police while Jim was swallowed by the crowd. When a warrant went out for his arrest. In August, he flew back to Miami for his trial, and Pam stayed in L.A. She did some heroin, and then some more. Days went by. Pam stopped eating regularly, and soon she was hospitalized for malnutrition. In the hospital, no one visited her. In her fervor for Jim, she'd let most of her friendships lapse. She knew that he would come if he knew she was there, but she wasn't about to call him in the middle of the trial. It was the band that had broken him, the pressure of the stage that made him drink, she thought. Things would get better if they could break free of the band, if they could escape L.A. When she finally talked to Jim, she told him, If you don't leave now, I'll leave without you. He didn't, and she did. Jim came home to find a note in her apartment. He burned it. Pam was gone to Paris with an old flame, a Frenchman named Jean who everyone called the Count. He told Pam he was really a French Count. She was never sure she believed him, but in those days everyone seemed to be full of it, inventing their own identity. She could do that, too. In Paris, everyone would know her as Pamela Morrison, even though she and Jean were an item. In December, Jim played his last concert with the Doors. In the middle of it, he lost control and started screaming. Bashed a mic stand to death. Pam came home for Christmas after the Count dumped her. She and Jim reconciled, but things were tense between them. In February, they woke up to an earthquake. It was a 6.5 on the Richter scale. The aftershocks lasted for hours. Pam looked at Jim and said, we've got to get out of here. Soon, they were making plans. Plans for a life. In France. For now, Jim kept it a secret from the other doors. He'd tell them when it was time. It was a cool summer day, and Jim and Pam were sitting outside a cafe. They'd been out exploring the countryside with Jim's friend, Alain, and now they had stopped for lunch. Three months earlier, Jim had finally joined her in Paris. He looked better and happier than he had in a long time. Paris was good for him. He could walk down the street without being mobbed by screaming high school girls. He could work on his poetry. A few weeks earlier, Jim had developed a persistent cough. The doctor they went to told him that Jim had to quit drinking so much. And while he still drank, he seemed like he had it under control. But Jim was also starting to feel nostalgic for the life he'd left behind. He'd called John Densmore the other day, and they'd shot the breeze as if they'd been the best of friends, when Pam knew well that they had had a tenuous working relationship at best. She had overheard him telling John he wanted to play the songs on their newly released L.A. Woman live, and then maybe record another album. 
Pam realized with some measure of alarm that for all his talk about feeling creatively stifled by the band, he loved the attention it brought him. He thrived on it. You better not go back to the band, Pam said. Otherwise, I'll leave you. No, you won't, Jim replied, shoving a fry into his mouth. He offered her one, and she took a bite. What do you know about it? Pam said, her lips curling into a smile. She tried to steer the conversation to the possibilities of a new life. I like the poems you've been writing. You always like my poems. I think you'd be happier if you could work on them full time, Pam said, stealing another fry. I heard you talking to John. Jim shrugged. Just letting the guys know that I'm okay. That's all. Why do you care what they think? Jim paused for a long time before he responded. We've been through a lot together. They were barely paying attention to Elaine, who was taking pictures of them a ways away, perched on another bench. As Pam looked into Jim's eyes, she thought about how, even though they'd both had their dalliances, they always came back to each other. Until the end of time, she thought. A week later, Jim and Pam went to the movies. Then they went home and snorted some heroin from Pam's stash. It was a perfect summer night, a Friday. And what a better way to spend it than blissed out with her man. They found their way to the couch and turned on some records. As she buried her face in his shoulder, she thought about how right she felt. They had nodded off. Pam was awoken sometime after 4 a.m. by Jim making retching sounds. Pam touched his forehead and he was burning up. Without saying anything, he got up off the couch and darted towards the bathroom. Pam followed him and he immediately started vomiting into the toilet, his whole body convulsing. And he kept throwing up long enough for the stink to completely overwhelm the room. Soon, he was coughing up what appeared to be clots of blood. Pam felt her heart racing, and she wondered if something might be seriously wrong. He kept puking blood. Then he stopped. Drop me a bath, he said, vomit smeared across his mouth. She got a towel and wiped it. He seemed out of breath, but okay now, like he'd gotten out whatever was in his system. Maybe the blood clots were why he'd been coughing so much. Pam started the bath water and looked over at him. Poor Jim. When the bath was done, she helped him take off his clothes and get into the tub. The hot water seemed to relax him. She knelt at his side. He was so beautiful, and she felt so fortunate to have his love. Jim opened his eyes and looked at her. I'm fine. Go back to sleep. He still sounded out of breath, so Pam hesitated. She briefly considered the possibility that he ought to go to the hospital, but he'd said he was fine. Besides, she didn't speak a lick of French and would need an interpreter if she was going to communicate with the doctors. The only person that she could think to call was Elaine, but he was staying with their friend, the film director Agnes Varda, and didn't want to disturb them in the middle of the night. The worst seemed to have passed. Maybe he'd feel better in the morning. I'm fine. Go back to sleep, Jim repeated. Finally, Pam relented and found her way back to the bed. As soon as she crawled under the covers, the heroine still working its dark magic on her, 
she was out like a light. When Pam woke, the clock told her it was only about 7.30. Jim wasn't there. He'd never joined her. Pam called out to him, and he didn't answer her. She quickly got out of bed and made her way to the bathroom. Jim? He was lying in the bathtub and appeared to be resting peacefully. Except... This didn't make sense. It had been hours, and the water must be cold. And it was pink. Pink from what? Blood? Her mind was more clear now than it had been the night before. And that made everything that happened come into a kind of horrible focus. She knelt down and shook him. His hair fell over one eye, and he remained limp. No, 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 no! Jim! She pounded his shoulder with one curled fist, crying when he didn't respond. There was no way. He said he'd been better. He'd stopped throwing up. Somehow, Pam found her way to the phone to call Elaine. She found it hard to talk to him through her sobbing. Jim's not waking up. I think something's wrong. We'll be there soon, Pam, Elaine said. Stay where you are. The rest of the morning, and everything immediately after, seemed to pass in some kind of surreal haze. Elaine came with Agnes, who helped Pam call the paramedics. They had to tear her away from the bathroom and from Jim's side. She couldn't help it. He was so peaceful, so beautiful, like he was just resting. When the paramedics came, Pam answered their questions, and Elaine translated. Then... They were talking about death certificates and burial. It was happening both too fast and painfully slowly. She'd just been in his arms, and yet this nightmare seemed to stretch out forever. Until the end of time. When she finally managed to lose consciousness the following night, she was nearly convinced it had indeed been a terribly vivid nightmare. She'd wake up and Jim would be fine. She woke up, alone, and that was final. Without Jim, Pam's world quickly fell to pieces. Only now did she realize how loosely held together it had been before. The money Jim had left her wasn't any consolation. Their friends turned away from her. Fans and the endless supply of Morrison hangers-on would ask, accusingly, jealously, why would he leave everything to you? Speculation about what had happened would ultimately and inevitably conclude in a tacit accusation. You gave him those drugs. You whore, you junkie, you worthless bitch. After Jim's death, Pam had no choice but to return to Los Angeles. She had to sell Themis, but by then... She was so numb that it hardly mattered to her. Pam moved to the Bay Area. She thought if she could get away from Los Angeles, from the people and places she associated with Jim, it might hurt less. She was walking near the pier one day when she saw a man with long blonde hair and glasses looking at her. She did a double take and noticed that it was Ray Manzarek. He stopped and started walking towards her. 
Pam braced herself, knowing she wasn't going to be able to escape this. Pam, Ray said quietly, what are you doing here? Change of scenery, she said, trying to smile. I live here now. She didn't think to ask Ray what he was doing here. She didn't particularly care. Ray opened his mouth, and Pam knew what he wanted to ask. She closed her eyes, and as the flood of memories from that horrible night came back, Pam started to cry and then sob. She fell into Ray's arms, and he held her. His embrace was comforting. I'm sorry, she said. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. After a while, she calmed down and he let her go, offering some pitying words of encouragement. Take care of yourself, Pam. And if you're ever back in LA, you've got a home with Dorothy and me. Shortly after that, Pam did move back to Los Angeles. San Francisco was too alien a place for her. But she never took Ray up on his offer. She didn't want to be a bother, and besides, it was too painful to be around him anyway. She still resented the doors, but she knew that Jim and Ray had loved each other. She found a cheap place to live with two guys. She and a friend started driving down to Tijuana on the weekends, get stone-faced drunk, score some heroin if they were lucky, stay the night, and then come back. Those were rare bright spots in those years, but the fire had already begun to burn out. And as a year became two and then three, there was no way that it would reignite. Not without Jim. Pam was alone, and the world was quiet, dull and desolate. She'd never really stopped using. But on this particular night, she'd felt an especially strong desire for the drugs to shield her from the pain. As she laid on the couch in her apartment, she thought she heard a noise. A car outside? She stumbled to the window and saw headlights. Of course. It may have been the middle of the night, but the traffic in Los Angeles never really stopped. It was dark, and she felt the side of the coffee table before she tripped and fell to the ground. It might have hurt more if the heroin hadn't already kicked in. Pam eventually dragged herself onto the couch, and for a moment, she imagined Jim was sitting next to her, his arms around hers. It had been three years, and the more time passed, the more distant he felt. His touch had been warm, comforting, safe. Had it been safe? If she was already forgetting, what would it be like in 10 years? In 20? Something told Pam she wouldn't have to worry about that. Anyway, to hear his voice again, all she had to do was put on a Doors record. She didn't know how many times she'd stood over the record player, the stylus between her thumb and forefinger, unable to drop the needle. That damn band had killed him. That band and her. In her fog, Pam allowed herself to consider the idea that everything everyone had said about her was true. Pam was startled by her roommate entering the living room. He turned on the light and Pam reflexively covered her eyes. Pam? Half asleep, still in his pajamas. What are you doing? I'm going to be with Jim. Her roommate said nothing and walked quickly down the hall into the bathroom. It seemed like an eternity before he finally walked back into his room and turned off the light. The darkness was nice, and as Pam closed her eyes, she thought she heard rain. 
Jim had told her once that rain meant new beginnings, washing away the old. She'd think about it all in the morning. For now, she wanted to sleep. She laid her head down. Pamela Corson's body was found the next morning, April 25th, 1974. She was 27, just like Jim had been. And with her death, it's unlikely that anyone will ever know exactly what happened in that Paris apartment. The music of the doors spoke to the outcasts, the ones compelled to confront the darkness. Fifty years later, Jim Morrison, Ray Manzarek, Robbie Krieger, and John Dowdsmore continued to be the voice and refuge for the disaffected multitudes. But this isn't about them. This is about Pam Corson, who loved Jim Morrison, confronted his darkness, and did everything she could to lead him safely through the storm, encouraging him to fulfill his purpose, to follow his heart as she followed hers, to the devil, to the sea, leading her always back to him, her wild love. This is About a Girl. About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created, written, and narrated by me, Eleanor Wells, with additional writing and editing by S.I. Rosenbaum. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer and mixer and provides music and editorial support. Audio editing by Matt Tahaney. Like the show? Please subscribe to About a Girl on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to leave a rating and review. For more great shows from Double Elvis, visit doubleelvis.com. That's doubleelvis.com.